millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A biblical massacre is about to take place in the Palestinian town of Rafah on the Egyptian border where 1.9 million souls are crammed into a town with a population normally of fewer than 150,000 people. It is perhaps the last straw that will make the world wake up, or will it? And free, free Nelson Mandela. He was freed from 27 years of incarceration in the dungeons of apartheid on this day. And as predicted here last week, Imran Khan has won the general election in Pakistan from inside a prison cell. And little Hind becomes the emblem of Palestinian suffering. It's going to be a bumpy night, so fasten your seatbelts. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Tucker Carlson broke the internet this week. More than 200 million people in English watched the interview with President Vladimir Putin. I was ridiculed last uh, Wednesday when I predicted that it would reach 150 million. It's 200 million, but if you add in the different language groups into which it has been translated, including, of course, Chinese, then the number may very well be close to 1 billion people. It is the most watched interview in recorded history. And there's a reason for that. Tucker Carlson, yes, had the courage to go ahead and do the interview, do his job do what a television journalist is supposed to do. Let other people hear the other side of the story. But also because Vladimir Putin, as I told you last week, would come across as neither Vlad the bad or Vlad the mad. His history lesson, his erudition, his grasp of the facts and the details in a two-hour interview when the President of the United States would be unable to concentrate for a two-minute interview, was a stark contrast and emblematic of the difference in the quality of leadership of the two rival powers, Russia and the United States of America, which is in such a parlous place right now that Hillary Clinton is dusting down her presidential robes hoping to have another go against Donald Trump, because it is self-evident now that after the finding of the uh, Justice Department in the United States that Joe Biden could not be prosecuted for breaches of the Documents Act because he was senile with a poor 
grasp of memory and with uh, an avuncular style that might disarm any potential jury. When the president of your country can't be prosecuted because he's senile, you've got a problem. And the Democrats now know that on top of all the other problems, Joe Biden can't win in November and they might be better throwing someone else into the mix. And uh, Piers Morgan, the poor man's Tucker Carlson, he got the sack again from Rupert Murdoch again. And Talk TV, our <laughs> rival, is fading into obscurity. Murdoch has announced that he is scaling back the tremendous loss-making investment that he has made in Talk TV. Without Piers Morgan, Talk TV doesn't exist. And soon it won't exist at all. Piers Morgan once told me, after I myself was sacked by the same Rupert Murdoch, that a sacking is an opportunity. So I want to extend to him this opportunity. He can come and join me on the mother of all talk shows as a guest two-headed panel presentation team, and we will at least make sure that he's exposed to larger numbers of viewers than he has been of late on the ailing, failing talk TV. I just heard my editor and indeed my director fainting at that offer, and I'm sure that they're praying that Piers Morgan will not take it up. But I mean it quite sincerely, folks. I'd like to grill Piers Morgan in the way that he grilled so many other people, reducing them to tears, breaking them, as he taunted and ridiculed them for views which are actually the mainstream views outside of the bubble of talk TV. So come and have a go, Piers, if you think you're hard enough. Nelson Mandela was my leader as an undercover agent of the African National Congress in apartheid South Africa. I was proud, I'm proud. It was one of the proudest things I've done in my life to go underground for the ANC in the last days of apartheid. Virtually no one else on the left in British politics had ever even set foot in apartheid South Africa. But I traveled its length and breadth and left my blood on the floor of the Guguletu police station in Cape Town, South Africa, just a few miles away, maybe two miles away, from Paul's Moore Hospital, where Mandela was then incarcerated. For illness, yes, but mainly so that the apartheid regime could conduct more easily the negotiations with him that led to the abolition of the apartheid state. Apartheid South Africa had no right to exist. No state has a right to exist. The USSR, the Soviet Union, had no right to exist, and now it doesn't exist at all. Czechoslovakia had no right to exist. Nazi Germany had no right to exist. No political construct called a state has a right to exist. It will exist until it doesn't. And that brings me, of course, to the extraordinary situation that we now face, even after almost 130 days of genocide. We may be on the brink 
of the greatest act of genocide in modern times. The Israeli armed forces, having remobilized their reservists, are besieging the town of Rafa, which I know so well, the gateway from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, where stretches out hundreds of kilometers of trucks full of aid, unable to gain access. And on the other side of a simple gate, there are 1.9 million Palestinians, refugees displaced again, refugees over and over again, whose tents and shacks and even living on the ground, even living on the cold earth into which they might soon be laid, are 1.9 million Palestinians. Netanyahu has given the green light to the military plan to launch an attack on Rafa. If it happens, if the world doesn't stop it, then nothing that we have seen so far, and we have seen so plenty, will be anything like the carnage that we're going to see. Imagine a town of 150,000 people. Imagine 1.9 million people now living in it, being subjected to a full-scale, no-holds-barred military assault by the terrifying child murderers of the Israel occupation force. It is almost impossible to imagine. But after all that you have seen over this last 128 days, you must at least be able to imagine what it is going to look like. I see rain is falling on Rafa. The streets are afloat with water and with bodies. The, the streets of Gaza may soon be running with the blood of hundreds of thousands of people. Now, David Cameron is concerned about it. So is Anthony Blinken, exactly the same word, concerned about it. Joe Biden is concerned about it. And again, he briefs that his relations with Netanyahu have reached an all-time low. And he has asked, asked Netanyahu not to launch this genocidal assault on all those people in Rafa. But of course, Biden's in a position that he doesn't have to ask. He can tell because Israel is afloat on dollars sent by the United States of America. All the weapons that will be used in the assault were given gratis by the United States of America. The intelligence overflights over Gaza are flown by the United Kingdom out of our apparently sovereign base in Cyprus. The Western allies of Israel are jointly and severally culpable for whatever happens next, just as they are responsible, complicit as collaborators in what has happened so far. They will not survive it, I predict you. The kind of carnage that we may be about any minute to witness will bring down governments and it will bring down leaders of the so-called opposition in Western countries that are in fact merely a part of an ironclad consensus between front benches everywhere, all for Israel, all for Netanyahu, all for Zionism. Zionism, which this week in an employment tribunal 
was found to be uh, the ideology that most of us said it was and not a religion. Professor David Miller won his case to establish that anti-Zionism is a protected characteristic under British law. No one can be dismissed from their job for being an anti-Zionist. It seems likely that no one should lawfully be able to be expelled from a political party for it either, although hundreds of thousands of people in Britain have so been expelled, expelled, suspended. But only if you're those or such as those, only where it suits will you pay the price of anti-Zionism, of hostility to Israel and its governing political system. David Miller's victory is a landmark judgment. That's why they're already burning the midnight oil to change British law to try and overturn the verdict of the tribunal. But there's not enough time left in this parliament for that to happen. And so everyone watching, in Britain at least, should know that the things they've been chanting, that the views they've been expressing, that the feelings they have inside of them are entirely lawful and no one can stop them from expressing them. The situation in the rest of the Gaza Strip reached perhaps its apex this week. Every so often in the conflict, like when I brought little Mariam Hamza back from Iraq to Britain for treatment for leukemia, becomes an emblem of a much wider issue, of a much bigger cause. And a new emblem arose in Palestine this week. This little girl, Hind, aged six years old, was traveling with her family in a car when the Israeli occupation force began firing on the car. They killed the adults first, and then they killed Hin's sister when she was on the telephone telling the Red Crescent Society, the Palestinian Red Cross, of where they were and what was happening to them. The sister then was killed, leaving this six-year-old girl alive in a car with her slain family, her slaughtered family lying beside her. And the audio, when she took the phone, will live forever. The audio in which she describes, a six-year-old girl describes that they are under fire, that her family are all dead, as she begs the ambulance to come and take her, to come and rescue her. The ambulance coordinated through the hotline which they have with the occupation force to say that they were going to pick up the little girl. And when they got there, the same Israeli killers murdered the two ambulance men who had arrived to pick up the little girl before murdering her. This girl had funny ears, funny glasses, funny toys, a cheeky smile, just like my daughter's, just like yours, just like your granddaughter's, and now she's dead. And worse, she was killed in unbelievable scenes of cruelty, of viciousness, of evil, 
an evil that would not be more evil or less evil than the evil of the executioners in the death camps of the Holocaust in the Second World War. They willfully murdered this little girl. They willfully murdered the ambulance men that came to save her. They knew what they were doing. They are now asleep or perhaps haunted and unable to sleep by the cold-blooded act of murder of a small child. And we have to remember this little girl. Every time we're asked to boycott McDonald's, boycott Starbucks, boycott labor, which has supported this carnage, this genocide throughout, we have to remember the face of that little girl. If ever we feel our resolve is weakening to do everything, anything in our power to come to the aid of the other little girls and little boys and their mothers and fathers, grandparents and their siblings and their uncles and their aunts who have not been killed yet. Hind will live forever in our minds, I pray to God, just like little Faris O'Day did the boy throwing the stone at the tank in previous iterations of this catastrophe. Think Hind. Think always of Hind. Think of her in that car with all her dead family around her. Think of the terror. Think of the fear, horror that she experienced. And think of this. Aged six, this little girl lived every single day of her life under siege. And her last breaths were breaths of absolute terror and horror. She lived in fear all of her life and died in scenes of unimaginable horror. We don't know at what point they killed her. We must now hope that she was killed quickly, that she was not left in the car with her festering family and then executed later when it suited the killers to do so. Perhaps when she was beginning to become an icon, the Anne Frank of the Palestinian population in Gaza, whose memory, whose face would haunt people for generations to come. Now, last week, our show was entitled Khan Imran Win. Well, he won, all right. The rightful Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, illegally, unlawfully removed from power by an American organized coup d'etat because he said absolutely not to American demands that he turn Pakistan once again into a base camp for America's attacks and America's subversion of Pakistan's neighbors, was overthrown, has been sent to prison for more than 20 years, whose wife has been sent to prison, whose party men and women have been killed, disappeared, imprisoned, their wives, mothers, sisters, disappeared, beaten and tortured in a conservative 
Islamic society, their head coverings torn from their heads, their position as women grievously undermined with long-term consequences for all of them. Imran Khan's party was banned. His symbol taken off the ballot paper. Imran was disqualified from standing. They jailed. They stopped people filing nomination papers. One candidate who was huckled by the dictatorship in Pakistan, his mother stepped forward to be the candidate in his stead. And she won. They all won. Imran Khan's candidates standing as independents swept the boards in a pre-rigged, then-rigged, and post-rigged election. Imran Khan's victory was so overwhelming, so complete, that even the tyrants in power in Pakistan could not deny it. There's only one way out of this impasse. Free Imran Khan, like Mandela was freed, Free, free Imran Khan. Reinstate him, Prime Minister of Pakistan. I promise you, this is going to be a bumpy night. It is the mother of all talk shows. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. We have a terrific guest, a man that many of you know from all the social media platforms. Many of you have read his books. His father was a general in the Israeli army, a signatory of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. My guest also served in the Israeli Occupation Army, but he regrets it now, and he has emerged over many decades now into one of the most effective critics of Zionism, of Israel, and its successive leadership. He's an author and an activist. Please welcome Miko Peled. Miko, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. If you don't mind, we'll start with the most urgent of all the urgent questions now facing us. Netanyahu is besieging Rafa and uh, a scene of unimaginable 
carnage may be stretched out before us. <coughs> What's going to happen there, in your view? Well, it's always good to be in a chat with you, George. So thank you for having me on the show again. Look, I think Netanyahu made it absolutely clear he rejected a, a very a measured and reasonable um, offer by the Palestinians in Gaza for a ceasefire and the release of the hostages, making it clear once again that all he's interested in really is uh, is the genocide, the ongoing massacre. It's time for the international community to step in. It's time to demand an embargo on weapons to Israel. It's time to demand a blockade on Israel. It's time to demand the unconditional release of all Palestinian prisoners and a no-fly zone over Gaza. That has to be the bare minimum. Nothing less, nothing less than that should be even, even accepted as, as an offer. And until the state of Israel uh, is willing to stop the killing, release the prisoners, uh, you know, uh, allocate the billions of dollars that are that are needed in order to rehabilitate and rebuild Gaza until such time, it should be treated as a pariah. There should be no diplomatic relations. There should be no trade relations. Uh, Israel should be kicked out of FIFA and the Olympic Committee and everywhere else. And that's it. They made it absolutely clear. They do not want a ceasefire. They want to keep killing at any cost. Well, it's time for the international community to say, well, here is the cost. If you will continue this genocide, there will be a cost. And the first measure must be an embargo on weapons. Not a single weapon, not a single piece of ammunition should be allowed to be sold to the state of Israel. And if anybody does sell them, they should be penalized. That's where this needs to go. No, uh, the... Uh... Prime Minister, the President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary General of the United Nations have all said they're concerned about what's going to happen. That's a bit like saying you're concerned about what is about to happen in the death camps of the Holocaust. What do you mean you're concerned? What are you going to do about it? Are they going to do anything? Look, I, I think that I think the comparison you made is right. I mean, once again, you know, people are being rounded up and massacred and the world is looking the other way. I mean, it happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. It's happening to Palestinians now and the world is looking the other way. It will happen when the constituents demand it. People are protesting, protesting. There's no clear demand. People are talking about Palestine on the streets, but there are no clear demands. Ceasefire is not a clear demand. Ending genocide is not a clear demand. Embargo on weapons is a clear demand. A blockade of Israel, a naval blockade is a clear demand. Stopping all flights, all commercial flights is a clear demand. Um, and of course, lifting, immediate lifting of the siege on Gaza and release of all Palestinian prisoners, these are clear demands. Allocating billions to rehabilitate and rebuild and provide humanitarian care for the people in Gaza, these are clear demands. We need to demand of our elected officials that this is the, 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 the that they enact these policies. We have to demand it. They're not going to do it on their own. Very few politicians will do the right thing unless they're forced to do it. And so this is what needs to happen. Anybody who cares for Palestine needs to stop hiding. We need to stop talking clearly and honestly. The state of Israel has got to be punished in the most severe way, or else there won't be any change. The uh, an analogy I heard once uh, has stayed with me that a surgeon cannot operate on his own foot. Uh, to imagine that this uh, is going to be resolved by Israeli politicians and internal uh, political realignment is fanciful, uh, that uh, somebody else has to operate on this uh, infected foot uh, that we might compare to Israel. 
and they're going to have to do so forcefully. Do you sense any sign yet that anybody anywhere in the world is ready to do that? No, unfortunately not. But it's not only that nobody's willing to do that. This is not even part of the conversation. Just like the safety and security, guaranteeing the safety, security, and the lives of Palestinians is not part of the conversation. What are we doing? What are we talking about? There is no guarantee. You know, we see these stories, these children, these mothers, these people being massacred, being killed by snipers, being killed by one-ton bombs every single day, and nobody speaks up. There is no guarantee. There is no one... No one providing safety, no one even talking about the need to provide safety and security for Palestinians, never mind life for the Palestinians. Enough is enough. So not only is it not being, does not seem realistic that it will happen, no one is even talking about it. And that's not even being demanded. I don't know what the negotiations are like behind the scenes between the Palestinians and, and all these different groups negotiating. But it's time, it, Netanyahu made it clear. He said no. He said no to a ceasefire. He said no to a to releasing of the hostages. We know, I mean, we you and I knew this before, but in case anybody had any doubts, we know now he wants to continue the killing as freely as and 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 as and as for as long as as, as he desires. And he needs to be stopped. Israel needs to be stopped. And like you said, it makes no difference if he's prime minister or one other one, some other genocidal maniac is 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 prime minister, because they all at the end of the day have the same have the same uh, policies. And we've seen this going back for decades. You probably more than anybody know this. So it's time to raise the level of demands. We need to stop treating Palestinians like their life is cheap, like they are meaningless. That's what the world is doing now. They're letting them die by the tens of thousands as though there's nothing. And they're still arguing whether Hamas is a terrorist organization, whether we should condemn the Palestinians. This is complete nonsense of a conversation. There needs to be severe action immediately against the state of Israel and immediate help for the Palestinians unconditionally, unconditionally. The state of Israel, there have to be punitive measures put in place immediately right now, and Israel needs to start acting unconditionally. This has gone beyond too far, far, far beyond too far. There are negotiations. Uh, they are uh, periodically restarted and, and broken off. But Netanyahu has a vested interest in their failure, doesn't he? Because almost certainly the first casualty of peace would be him. He'd fall from power right into the dock and probably behind bars. Well, I could live with that. <laughs> I can certainly live with that. I don't think that's a bad thing. But you're right, he's bound because his right flank, the, these maniacal uh, settlers that are, you know, in his government, they're the ones who are keeping him in power. And he does not want to, uh, you know, he doesn't want to disrupt their, uh, he doesn't want to disrupt anything because he doesn't want to lose their support and they're demanding more killing and so on. But uh, it's it shouldn't be up to him. It should be it should be forced in a way that it doesn't. Like I said, it doesn't matter who the prime minister is. There needs to be a forced, uh, forced agreement, a forced ceasefire, but not just a ceasefire, an elimination of the danger for Palestinians forever, not a temporary stop of the killing of Palestinians, an elimination of the danger, an absolute guarantee for the safety and security of Palestinian lives, moving from now on forever. That needs to be the conversation. Yes, uh, quite so. Uh, a ceasefire is necessary, but not sufficient. You and I have lived through many ceasefires, only for the fire 
to resume again. You could set your alarm, uh, you set your alarm clock uh, by it. I- I've had to lead convoys uh, into Gaza to break the siege. I mean, roughly every two, three years. Uh, so a ceasefire, whilst of course is a, a necessary precondition, but if it's only a ceasefire, it's meaningless. It's got to be an end to the occupation. It's got to be an end to the agony of the Palestinian people, a permanent uh, end. I want to ask you about something. I don't know uh, if you're placed uh, to answer it. I said in my monologue that this little girl, Hind, uh, who was murdered in her uh, family's car, along with all of her family members and the ambulance drivers that tried to reach her and save her, a six-year-old girl. She's become emblematic around the world. I'm just wondering if you know if she made any impact on Israeli public opinion, if anyone paused for a moment and thought that that little girl could be theirs. You know, if that was a possibility, there would have been many, this would have happened many, 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 many dead children ago. You know, was it a year or two ago, they shot a little uh, Muhammad Tamimi, a two-year-old, in, in his car with his father in, in, in the village of Nabi Saleh. This beautiful young boy, two-year-old boy. I mean, if Israel, if there, if if there was a moment where Israelis could be moved, that moment would have been, like I said, many, many dead children ago. It's not working. It's not happening. It is not happening. And you, you can hear it. You can see it. You can see it in the Israeli press. You see it in the, you know, in all the other media outlets that are, that support Israel in the way they in the way they justify this uh, this genocide and this brutality and cruelty. Heartless, cold brutality. It's not showing anywhere. I'm not seeing any such demand to stop the killing, any such, uh, you know, heartfelt, um, you know, empathy with the Palestinians. I don't hear it or see it anywhere. And again, how many, how many young children have we seen? How many pictures have we seen of, of, of children who are, who are massacred like this over the years? I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying to think about it, but it's not happening. It's not making a dent. It is making a dent in the United States, though, isn't it, Miko? Uh, 50% of uh, Biden's own supporters believe that Israel is committing genocide. And another 20% were unsure uh, about that. Uh, This is beginning to make a significant impact on American politics, isn't it? Unfortunately, uh, we've got Zion Don on one side, and genocide Joe uh, on the other of the two likely presidential uh, hopefuls. Yes, I, I I heard earlier before I, I came on, you talking about Jill Stein, who is a good friend of mine too, and I support her completely. And I think she's the only candidate that has a message that would resonate with, with, with what is happening right now. She's the only one that, number one, has some sense of empathy for what is happening. And uh, and, ha- and and provides a real a real op- a real op- option to 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 the policies of the United States. And so I would really hope that people who are disenfranchised and like you and I do not believe in the lesser of two evils because they're both evil would opt to uh, would opt to uh, to to vote for her. And and I think a strong show for her would would be a clear message to to you know it would change the the way american politics are 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 you know take take politics happens in america i think it's 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 very very important to have a voice that has a clear 
progressive agenda when it comes to Palestine and is clearly anti-Zionist. I don't know that we've ever seen this in America. And Jill is, you know, she's she's a high profile. People recognize her. People know her. She's been in the press. She's very well spoken. So I'm really hoping that this will push her push or push people to put her name on the at the top of the ticket to, if nothing else, send a clear message that is no longer business as usual. Finally, here, uh, this is a $64,000 question. You used to call it when that was a very great deal of money, Miko. Uh, we know why the governments uh, of uh, Western countries, including virtually all of the European countries, support Israel. It's part of an imperial system. Uh, Israel is a part, a key part of the, of the armory, of the order of battle, uh, of the empire. Uh, but why do all opposition parties also support them? Uh, they, you'd think that they at least, even if just because they see how many millions are on the streets, that they would lean a little and be more proactive, more empathetic uh, to the suffering of the Palestinians. But in virtually every Western country, the opposition party, is as supportive of what's happening in, as the government part. How, how do you figure that out? What, go figure, as you Americans like to say. Well, I would, I would argue two things on this. I would offer two things. The first one is the fact that the Zionists have, you know, as you've well known, have been investing in all political parties, on all political platforms for over 100 years. They've been working with Labour, with the Tories, with any government, any opposition, any party that might, any politician that even has some, you know, minimal possibility of ever being in power, they've been investing in them. So they don't care about that. So they've been doing it very effectively. And the other side is that we have been absent. In other words, we have not yet managed to close the gap between public opinion on Palestine and the people who make policy on Palestine. The hall, in the halls of power. It hasn't happened in America. It's not happening in Europe or in the UK yet. And that's on us as constituents. We need to be present. We need to push and fill that gap that exists and has existed for a very long time between public opinion and the policymakers. And it's up to us because they're not going to do it on their own. So I think those are the two reasons why you see it doesn't matter which party is in power, you're going to see support for Israel uh, either way. Miko Pellet, thank you for your wisdom as always. Thanks for joining us on the mother of thank all you. talk shows. Coming up after the break, we've got Hassan Shami, a Lebanese social media warrior of the first rank. He's also a pharmacist, an entrepreneur, but above all, he's an activist for Palestine. He's really worth hearing. Hassan Shami coming up after this short break. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Thank you. 
You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Looking in fine fetal, Hassan joins me now. Hassan, uh, I was asking uh, Miko Pelled earlier, or making the point to him rather, uh, that the issue of what's happening in Gaza, happening in Palestine, is finally beginning to have some traction in the United States public opinion. Uh, if you'd told me when I started out on this uh, battle more than 50 years ago that the day would come when most Americans would agree with me uh, rather than agree with Israel, I would never have believed you. And if you look at the polling amongst Joe Biden's support base, a very clear majority of people not only disagrees uh, with what Biden is doing uh, with Israel in Gaza, but half the people who voted for Joe Biden last time believe that Israel is committing genocide. What has brought about this tremendous change? Well, George, I want to thank you for having me on the show. Uh, we love you out here in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, we remember your 2006 legendary interview with Sky News uh, during the 2006 war with uh, Israel and Lebanon. So thank you for having thank me. You. But, thank you. you know, welcome here in Dearborn, you know, we, we grew up attending protests since the 90s, the 80s. I was born in 89, but in my childhood, my father took me to all the protests against the Israeli aggression on Lebanon and Palestine. And I don't think my father saw the light at the end of the tunnel. But today, now, as we go to these protests in 2023 and 2024, due to social media and due to the narrative not being able to be tightly controlled uh, by mainstream media anymore, Israel and their war crimes have been exposed. And we finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. The public opinion, not only in America, but all over the world has changed. So we see millions of people all over social media and coming out and, and protest all from every inch of the, of the earth supporting the Palestinians. And it's a, it's a great sight to see. It is. Uh, I, I've spoken actually more than once in Dearborn. I love it dearly. Uh, please give my salam to anyone who's met me there. Uh, it's crucial for a Democrat to win the state of Michigan. And I would have thought at this point in time, uh, I've got a better chance of winning the state of Michigan in November than Joe Biden. And I'm not even on the ballot. That is true. You do, you know. So right now what we're doing out here in Michigan is Michigan is one of three states in the country that has the, an uncommitted um, section on the ballot. So they're pushing a campaign to, for, to have all Muslims and anyone who supports the Palestinian cause and all minorities to vote uncommitted uh, on the Democratic uh, uh, section of the ticket on February 27th. And the strategy is to show the minorities, to give you know the Muslims and the Arabs and all minorities the, the hope that we can control the elections in Michigan. You know, Michigan is a swing state and we probably can't elect a president, but we can, we sure as hell can, you know, have one of the front runners lose an election. So if we get over 15% of people voting uncommitted, uh, that gives us a lot of power. And that's, that's a strategy right now. They've tried hard to win you back. Uh, they've sent Biden. I think he announced that he'd place sanctions on two settlers in the West Bank. Uh, he must think you're cheap. Uh, are they still trying or have they given up? Yeah, this week, this past week, they showed up to Dearborn to try to talk to, uh, you know, politicians and uh, leaders in the Dearborn and Metro Detroit area. Uh, but they crossed the red line. No one's going to vote for Biden. Uh, these, um, you know, 
setting up sanctions on settlers means absolutely nothing. You know, the Democrats have hijacked the Muslim community specifically for way too long post 9-11. And uh, all they did was point their fingers at the Republicans and say, well, they hate you. We're going to protect you. And they haven't protected us. Even during the Obama time, if you see all the wars and all the bombs dropped by Obama himself, the Democrats have never protected the Middle East or the Muslims and, and Arabs. Uh, and finally, because of this war, I feel like everyone's starting to wake up to this. So um, Joe Biden and his team, Genocide Joe, Butcher Biden has crossed the red line and he won't be winning in November in Michigan. The uh, number of, I mean, Obama bombed, I think, seven different Muslim countries uh, in his uh, two terms, uh, including killing American citizens, by the way, uh, without due process, and, and, and then killing the son of one of the American citizens in a subsequent uh, droning. We droned a lot of folks, he might have said or crooned in his tan suit. Uh, he uh, was, uh, of course, no friend uh, of uh, Arab Americans, of Muslim Americans, and certainly not Arabs and Muslims abroad. But if you look at Biden now, Biden has actually bombed, uh, he's bombed Gaza, at least his bombs were used. He's himself bombed Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Yemen, and it, it, it's only February. It's not even the middle of February. That's quite a record of Arab blood yeah, spilled think- by an, a Democratic president that said he was going to protect you. Yeah, Biden's definitely not going to protect us. You see, it's funny. They try to bomb Yemen and go to war with Yemen because they're blocking the Red Sea, and they haven't killed anyone. But why are they allowing Israel to continue their aggression? You know, so the, the Israelis, the illegal state of Israel, has killed and bombed and is committing genocide and ethnically cleansing the Palestinians, yet you continue to fund them. But when the Yemenis block the Red Sea just to try to stop the war, you want to kill and bomb them. Quite hypocritical, if you, you, know, if you ask me. Now, what's the reason for the success of, um, of independent broadcasters, social media analysts, pundits like you? Uh, you're a very handsome guy. You've got a great voice. Uh, is that it, or are the people just now more sensitized to the message, or is it both? I think, and you know, I think it's people are sensitized to the message. You know, there's myself and many others that are a lot better than me that we know we're just speaking truth. We're speaking truth. We're speaking from the heart. We're not scripted. We're very passionate in our beliefs because we're, we are standing with light. As Netanyahu says, there's light versus darkness. Well, we are the light and Israel's the darkness. Netanyahu is the darkness. And so when we go out on social media and we speak with truth, with so much passion, it just catches the, uh, it, it gravitates to the hearts of the listeners. And so that's all it is. Yeah, uh, light and darkness. I think he, uh, he, he was foolish to, um, to initiate that metaphor because uh, nothing could be more clear than that they represent the heart of darkness. Uh, nowhere more so than in the uh, deliberate, I was going to say indiscriminate, but it isn't indiscriminate, it's deliberate. A deliberate slaughter of children, deliberate slaughter of women who might have children, go on to have children or more children. The deliberate slaughter of doctors and writers and poets and intellectuals uh, the decapitation strategy of Palestinian society. The purpose is clear, isn't it? It's a genocidal purpose of ethnic cleansing. They're in Rafa for a reason, 
aren't they? They're in Rafa because next stop is the Sinai Desert. And that's where Israel really wants them, isn't it? Absolutely. This is ethnically cleansing. They're ethnically cleansing the Palestinians. They've been exposed throughout social media. And, um, you know, the world sees it. You know, if Israel and Palestine were, li- were labeled X and Y, and you just listed, you know, under each one, the, the history, the entire world would support Y, which is Palestine. But because of Israel and politics and the Zionist movement from the late 1890s and the evil and, and greed for money, you know, they support Israel. But you take out the names and you just list what these two people or countries have gone through. And I know for a fact the world will support Palestine. Now, when I was in Dearborn, uh, it's the first time, only time in my life uh, when all the cops were on our side uh, in these issues. Is that still the case? Is the cause really dominant, hegemonic uh, in the Detroit area? Dearborn is a blessing. We have a great mayor named Mayor Abdullah Hamoud, who's one of us, young 32-year-old, 33-year-old mayor, good friend of mine. The Dearborn police, unbelievable uh, amazing cops in the city that protect us. And, you know, a lot of the immigrants in Dearborn came here in the 1970s. You know, my mother and father left Lebanon during the civil war in the 1970s, came to Dearborn. And a couple years after Israel invaded Lebanon and occupied it for over 20 years. So the people of Dearborn, the politicians, the cops, they know what's, you know, what we've been through and what we fight for. And we stand with truth and they support us and they protect us at all costs. It's the only place in the world I've been where the police queue up for selfies with me. It was a remarkable uh, experience. How can uh, people support your work, Hassan? Where can they find you? You know, I'm just on Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram is Hassan Shami, one with an underscore. Uh, I'm just out here putting videos to promote truth, you know, to promote the Palestinian cause, uh, to promote unity amongst all faiths, all people, you know, brown, white, Muslim, Christian. You know, if, if you see, when you, when you study this war between Israel and Palestine, which you can't even call it a war. They try to paint it as a Jewish versus Muslim war, but it's not Jews versus Muslims because there are Palestinian Christians who are being affected. But the media doesn't want to talk about the Christians for a reason. You know, so this is not just Jews versus Muslims. This is Zionism against the world. This is terrorism against the world. And so support, you know, follow my Instagram and along with many others, support the videos, share them, and let's spread truth around the world. Well, uh, you... you spoke uh, very important words there. Uh, Not only is it not us against Jews, there are growing numbers of Jews who are identifying with us. Miko Pellet that was on just before you uh, is a veteran of that. But we've now got a whole generation of American Jews, a substantial number of whom, a substantial proportion of which Uh, are identifying with the cause of justice. As Malcolm X said, I I believe in justice, no matter who it's for, no matter who it's against. That's the spirit, isn't it? It's the humanitarian spirit. You must stand up for truth. You must stand up for, um, you must stand against falsehood, right? It is, as humans, we can sense what is right and what is wrong. And I, and I continue to, to stand up against Zionism because Zionism is the cancer to the world. It's the cancer to the Middle East. And as long as there's a Zionist government in the Middle East, there will never be peace. Hassan, you're a credit to your parents and your people. Uh, give them my salam. And I'm sure you'll get a lot more new followers after this appearance this evening. Hassan Shami, thank you very much for being on the Thank Mother you, George. Appreciate it. Shows. 
You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Last call then is from Canada and it is from Ariane. Ariane, welcome to the show. Thank you, George. Uh, I want to congratulate you. You are doing a spectacular job. There is no other individual on this planet Earth that I can think of that has the consciousness, awareness, and a sense of justice that you display every day on an every show. And I've been watching you for over 20 years. You're doing an amazing job. The simple well, question that exists well, today, you. though, you mentioned you mentioned that you mentioned that um, you know this this thing about genocide. You also wonderfully talked about Imran Khan. Uh, you know this thing that started in both in India, Pakistan, and the Middle East was caused by the British from over a hundred years ago, and this sort of uh, it begs a question: mm-hmm. uh, what kind of what kind of world are we emerging in where the legacies of colonialism and the vestiges of it are still around? And what can we as people throughout the world do? I mean, uh, the United mm. States uh, had all the protests against Iraq. People mm. people had consciousness, they had awareness, but they were uh, unable to convince their governments. And here we go again through the same thing with genocide in, in Gaza and, for example, in Pakistan. So mm. what do you think, just as a philosophical question, as someone who's aware at a higher level, what do you think, the, the mm. what, what, what sort of agenda, what can ordinary people do, or what do you see on the horizon so that we can we can sort of keep these uh, childish politicians at bay. Well, thank you, first of all, for your uh, very kind uh, comments. Uh, You touched me deeply with them. Um, The hour is late, so I can't do your question uh, justice, really, but I'll try and summarize what I think. We're not called perfidious Albion for nothing. And you're not called... Uh, a genocidal colonial country for nothing. In Canada and all the way from Canada to Chile, European colonialists massacred a hundred million people and stole the lands that belonged to other people and stole what was under them uh, and took away everything that they could carry. Uh, It was an act of brigandage. It was an act of piracy. Uh, I was talking to uh, a Bengali audience of children yesterday, and I think I surprised them when I told them that when the British arrived in Bengal, it was the richest place in the world. And when Britain left Bengal, it was the poorest place in the world. And you don't have to be Einstein to work out what happened in between. We stole it all. The might of the British Empire was built on the theft of uh, the resources of other people. As you know, the Egyptians have only got pyramids because they were too big to cart off to the British Museum. Uh, The uh, truth is that European colonialism, and you're a part of it in Canada, European colonialism colonized the world Britain ruled 25% of the world's surface and controlled the lives of 35%, more than one in three of all the people in the world. Every second day of the year, a country celebrates its independence from Britain. So 
our empire, then superseded by uh, the American empire, uh, lies together with the French empire, Spanish empire, Portuguese empire, uh, Italian empire, German empire, European empires, and their North American offshoots are responsible for the great crimes that have scarred the last 300 or 400 years of human history. The uh, truth is that our people have not shaken themselves free of this colonialist mentality. Some still believe that we had some right to sail the seven seas and steal other people's countries, steal their wealth, even steal their people, and take them off in chains as slaves in the holds of ships, transported as beasts of burden to work as slaves in the, in the Caribbean and in North America. Uh, some of our people have not lost that mentality. After all, how's that for exceptionalism? You have to be exceptional, don't you, to believe you have the right to do these things? And of course, if you believe you yourself are exceptional, uh, then that by definition means you believe other people are less than you, less exceptional than you. And so the two places that you mentioned are British crimes. The reason Kashmir is held today by a foreign power, held in bondage, the reason we are commemorating the martyrdom of Makbul Bhatt today in Kashmir and amongst friends of Kashmir around the world is because the British handed over an overwhelmingly Muslim population that wanted to be in Pakistan if the country was to be partitioned, handed over to the Maharaja uh, in India. Um, the reason Palestine is in crisis is because in 1917, the British Prime Minister, on behalf of one people, promised to a second people the land that belonged to a third people, and thus a bloody staircase, descending staircase, to the horrors we have today was constructed and has been embarked upon. So that's why fundamentally I define myself as an anti-imperialist. I hate imperialism, not for any philosophical reason. That's above my pay grade. I left school at 16 and became a factory worker in Michelin tires. But being of Irish extraction, I knew what imperialism meant. It meant going to other people's countries and stealing their things and bullying them until they agreed to hand those things over. And I've always hated thieves and I've always hated bullies. And these are the basic imperatives of my political life. I'm doing everything I can, everywhere I can, on every platform I can, with all the breath that God still will give me uh, to hasten the day 
that the bullies are beaten, that the thieves are put where they should be, and that the wealth of the people should be restored to the people whose wealth it is and distributed equally and fairly amongst them. That's my political philosophy. I didn't need to read any big political books to come to that conclusion. My faith guides me to that conclusion. My conscience, my daily communion with God forces me to choose right over wrong. Everybody knows when they're doing the right thing. Everybody knows equally when they're doing the wrong thing. It's about winning that inner struggle in yourself when tempted to do the wrong thing, to do the right thing instead. And that which is true of an individual is truer still of a nation, truer still of a group of nations. They know that what they do is wrong and they must change or we must change them. There's an apology in the air, on the newspapers, online, here in Rochdale today. It may be the most abject, the most base, the most demeaning and degrading and the least sincere apology ever given by any public figure. Me, on the other hand, I have nothing to apologize for. I stand with the Palestinian people. I have done all of my life. I will do until the end of my life. And after me, my six children and their children, all of whom were on the streets of Rochdale today with me, rallying for peace and justice in Palestine. So I don't apologize. I'm proud of the stand that I have taken. I had no choice but to take it. My conscience would not have allowed me to do any other. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. I've enjoyed the show this evening. I hope you did. And if you did, then the good news is I'll be back, God willing, on Wednesday at exactly the same time, 7 p.m. UK time. Why not turn out? for the next installment of the mother of all talk shows and bring another viewer with you. Why don't you? Good night.